This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Benjamin Law, welcome to Better Reading. Hey, thanks so much for having me. As you can see, I'm a little bit excited. <laughs> <laughs> Not as much as me. I really am. Um, now, you know, uh, I'll tell you this too. You've got to ac- excuse my ignorance. I don't have a television, so oh I don't gosh, watch TV. Don't be silly. So I know a lot about you, but it seems to be in all the other mediums rather than TV. But you can You tell don't me. know that I'm the biggest TV star in the world. No, I get a sense of that though. <laughs> <laughs> I said to the girls today, he's been on telly, but I haven't seen it. <laughs> I um, haven't been on that much. Uh, I don't you have a great uh, successful TV show on oh, SBS? Yeah, yeah, that's true, but I'm not on it myself. There's a actor playing a version of me who's been fictionalized, which is quite confusing. So in a way I have and in a way I haven't. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about that and how you pull that off. Anyway, okay, let me introduce you. There might be a couple of people in this country that don't know you. <laughs> I don't know who they are. Um, Benjamin was born in Queensland and he's based in Sydney. He is a journalist, a columnist, TV screenwriter and best-selling author. He's the author of the memoir, The Family Law, the travel book, Geisha, is that right? That's right. Adventures in the Queer East, both nominated for the Australian Book Industry Awards and the 2017 quarterly essay on safe schools, which is quite a serious piece of work and I want to talk about that, um, Moral Panic 101. The Family Law is now an award-winning SBS TV series which Benjamin created and co-writes. Benjamin has also written for over 50 publications in Australia and beyond, including Good Weekend, which I read, Mm -hmm. The Guardian, The Australian, and Monaco. And he currently co-hosts ABC Radio National's weekly pop culture show, Stop Everything, with Beverly Wang. Okay, um, I have loved you for a long time. (gasps) Thank you. This (laughs) isn't a podcast, it's a date, it's a marriage. (laughs) It is, it is, it is. Um, So I want to talk to you firstly because there's a lot of humour but there's a lot of seriousness in the work that you do. Sure. Yeah, and the issues are really big um, and there's a lot going on at the moment. So firstly I want to start with how you came to be, you know, the personality that you are. Tell me about... (laughs) Where you grew up, where you came from, and how you came to here. Okay, so I grew up in coastal Queensland, specifically the Sunshine Coast, which I think is still the number one retirement capital of the entire country. A lot of um, single floor shopping centres as a result. And my handy, handy yes, when you retire. We actually lived across the road from one of the biggest ones, and my mum and dad moved there from Hong Kong in the 1970s. They they just married and. And they went from Hong Kong, which is this big megalopolis, to the Sunshine Coast in the 1970s, which my mum described as a ghost town, partly because there was 
not many people there and partly because everyone was white. Uh, Why on earth did they choose that place? I still ask the same question uh, because they would have stood out like a sore thumb even more so then and they moved to coastal Queensland, beautiful beaches, and neither of my parents can swim. So, so what was what was the point? But of course, if you go there, do you um, think they put out a map of Australia <laughs> <laughs> and had a look around, or was it that they came for work? Or they came for work. There was a work came, opportunity okay, there. Right. There was a restaurant that my dad and uh, could work in. All that sort of stuff. The usual right. kind of Chinese, especially okay. Cantonese migrant story. Um, but. It is funny. I think they looked around and dad had already visited prior to moving and he just thought it was paradise, which I think Australia does represent to a lot of people from migrant background, Chinese or otherwise. There's so much space. There's so much clean air. We're I mean, a largely tolerant people, largely. And, um, yeah, so that that's the environment in which we grew up. And we had a reputation for being the lucky country, supposedly. Exactly. Yeah. Lucky in some ways. Yes. Um, and in, well, many fundamental ways, I think. And then they did what migrants do so well, which is spawn. They, they popped out five kids and I'm the middle of five. So yeah, I, wow. I grew up in a big, loud migrant family that probably resulted in me being similarly similarly loud in my profession. <laughs> mm, mm. I grew up, um, my parents are Lebanese, uh-huh. Australian, and, we, and they came out um, in the 50s, late 50s, um, and I'm one of six. One um, of six, which number are you? I am fourth from the top, so oh. I'm middle too. So have you read all those books about like birth order and number one child will be this, number two child, have you like what, yeah. where, what, what Spice Girl of the six are you? Yeah, <laughs> Which I don't, place do you occupy? I don't know. It's it's well, I mean, obviously I haven't been as successful as you have, but Are you kidding? Look I, at this. <laughs> do you know the numbers of this podcast? I've seen them. They're huge. Yeah, I think it's five girls and a boy who's the youngest. My brother has a he's he dits all those books. He'll tell you that just being female you're going to be successful. That's his version of his sisters, uh, right. which I really love. But I don't, yeah, I'm not sure that we all fit the criteria because I think because we were migrant kids. Mm, yeah. Anyway, we're going to have a lot in common here because yeah, we've yeah, had yeah, a lot yeah. of, um, you know, just from what I've read about you, we've had a lot of similar experiences. Big families, migrant background. Absolutely. And also we always had to do better. The expectation was that we had to do better than our parents, didn't we? Well, there's kind of also the subtext that, yes, one, that your parents have sacrificed so much so you better have the life that they wanted because, you know, they've given up so much for you. And I think there's also the other undercurrent that – um I don't know if it was ever explicit in our household, but there is sometimes that idea that you'll probably have to try twice as hard to get the same amount of success as anyone else. Um, and, and unfortunately, the data actually shows that, you know, all those studies that show if you have a um, conspicuously Chinese name, if you even if you have a conspicuously um, Italian name, for instance, that you do actually have to apply to the same jobs more to get the same callback. So there is kind of some truth in that. Mm, mm. And there is, you know, I mean, 
look, you know, I love living here. I was born here like you and, mm. you know, this is definitely my home and I'm, I'm definitely Australian and I love it. I love every bit of it. But there are memories of growing up that mm. are really difficult for me, like yeah. being thrown off the bus because we're wogs. Jeez. I mean, you know, I don't know if you experienced any of that. Well, I, I think even now, even though that, say, as time has gone on, Lebanese Australians, Chinese Australians, we've been accepted more as then newer Australians coming in now. But at the same time, first of all, like you say, there are those historical kind of things that we can't, that we can't really shake that we experienced mm. growing up. Mm. Um, where I grew up was kind of one nation heartland. Um, and I think the other thing is there are still kind of, um, in the current political conversation, the way that that generation of Lebanese immigrants is talked about now retrospectively, the way that Chinese mm. immigrants are still talked about. It's more of a dog whistle, but those conversations are still mm. very much present mm. um, and you don't need to scratch too hard to to find them in mainstream politics. You don't, not at all. It didn't help that my mother dressed us all the same. I always think, was it the fact <laughs> that we stood out, not because of our looks, but because of the way that we were dressed. Wow, I'm just getting like that is such, <laughs> that is such that. an aesthetic choice. <laughs> that is really so. A I think sometimes statement. we didn't stand a chance, but anyway, I, I forgive her for all of it because she is the best <laughs> mum ever, or she is the best mum ever. I, I, this is interesting, and this is just out of left field. But I've been listening to some podcasts over the weekend, mainly American ones, um, just because I'm trying to make sense of the Mueller report. But anyway. Yes. Um, and we don't want to talk about that today. It's depressing. But when I hear, um, the, at the end, they always say who produced it, who yeah. made it, who whatever, the diversity of names. Mm. This is little, but it's, it just sat with me. You know, last night I came back from Tasmania and it really sat with me. You know, five or six people and every one of them, uh, was a name that was, you know, whatever it was, Italian American, Chinese American, Lebanese American, whatever. And I feel that that's taken a long time here yes. to happen. Yes. I think predominantly, um, and if you work in publishing, it's been very, very white. Mm-hmm. Our content Publishing, producers. media, arts, yeah. those kinds of industries, yeah. Yeah, and so as a result, we get something fantastic like SVS. Mm-hmm. But really, shouldn't we... Shouldn't it all be SBS? I think Australia and America have some some fundamental differences in their approaches to how they talk about race. Yeah. Um, in Australia, we really like multiculturalism and diversity. I think that is largely true, but we pat ourselves on the back very easily about how egalitarian we are and... My hunch is that that's actually our liability, that we are so self-assured that we've gotten diversity and multiculturalism right that to bring it up explicitly like, hey, maybe we should have more people from other backgrounds in parliament, in media and the arts is a huge affront to that idea of who we are as Australians and therefore we get complacent. So the idea that we would actively encourage people from other backgrounds to join certain industries, people like, oh, well, isn't that, isn't that tokenism or isn't that too PC? And it's like, guys, we should be less worried about tokenism and PC, whatever those things even mean in the first place. Honestly, awful. And more concerned about the fact that you are excluding, whether you are aware of it or not, you are structurally excluding people from other backgrounds from participating. That's the much bigger concern. And when I hear, like, even jokingly, when I hear people say, oh, well, you're the token Asian, blah, 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 or you're the token gay guy, blah, 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 
I used to take that in the spirit of what it was meant to be, which is a joke. But now I'm like, actually, if that's coming from especially a white, able-bodied, middle-aged dude, they will never have that thrown at them even as a joke. They have this assumed meritocracy inbuilt into them as if it's the natural way of things that they would rise to the top. But anyone else rising to the top, well, <laughs> obviously you're the token blah, blah, blah. The number of times or it's women quota. or minorities get that, it, I, I actually have just come to the point where I'm like, actually, that's really sexist or that's really racist or that's really homophobic mm. or that's really ableist, whatever. Um, I'm a bit over it. Um, I've got a, a new crush um, and don't be worried mm-hmm. because uh, I can have multiple crushes at the same time. <laughs> but my new crush is Jan Fran. Oh, yes, Jeanette Francis. She's, uh, she's a good bud of mine. I am lo- – You should I, have a crush on her. I do have a crush on she's her. She's great. I, I, I think she's so smart. Yep. And I saw um, – it wasn't called The Merit Man, but she did – you know how she does those short videos? Yeah. She apparently writes those all herself yeah, as well. Yeah, I've seen her we, – we were in a on-stage debate together and seeing her deliver what she wrote, obviously, and like she is one of the most um, brilliant monologists, if that's mm. even a word – in mm. the country right mm. now, I think like she should, you know. Oh, she's someone to watch, yeah, without yeah. a doubt. But she wrote something. She did this piece, this video piece on. I call it Merit Man, and I've sent it to so many of my friends. But it is the fact that that Merit Man only exists for those that are merited. You know, and she has a look at, you know, how many people are on boards, like how many people Mm -hmm. named John are on boards and everything else. But also too, she take, she took, had a look at the law and high court judges and how many of those, the high percentage of those that even just went to the same exclusive school. Yeah, exactly. So the system is rigged, is. (sighs) Well, I just find it extraordinary that people can claim that we live in a meritocracy when you see how mediocre our politicians are. I mean, if you think that is the result of merit, like, oh my God, give me anything else but then. Oh. Like, if, if that's what, if that's the talent that has risen to the top, like, can you really tell me that they've risen to the top because of merit and not because of how much money they have and which schools they went to? I mean, and who their mates are. Brave. And who their mates are. And is it a meritocracy when you've got like one particular demographic in power deciding mm. What's meritocracy? Like, it's it's just ridiculous. Mm. Look, you know, I mean, I, I feel very angry. Every time I say that I think that Penny Wong should be in the chair, should, we should be voting whether it's either Penny Wong or Scott Morrison, and people say, oh, you know, Australia's not ready for that. I mean, oh, that makes me so angry. Well, uh, have you read Rebecca Huntley's latest quarterly essay yet? Because she's... I love her. Yeah, she's, she's got, um, you know, her latest quarterly essay, which is all about data and polling mm. and what actually... Mm the research shows us is that Australian politics is really lagging behind community sentiment. And I think a lot of that is to do with the people that are nominated into positions of power. Like democracy isn't a neutral thing. Like we design the ways in which our democracy works and the historically the power structures that have led to certain people being nominated for positions of power, like it has excluded like a lot of people that a lot of other people would be really interested in in voting for. And it'll be quite fascinating coming up into this election. There are people 
from far more diverse backgrounds putting themselves up for nomination. I agree. It's a start. It's a start. But it's not a revolution. I think it is going to be a surprise because I think, I mean, did I read somewhere, and you probably know this more than I do, but I read somewhere that we've had the highest registration of young voters. Yeah. Did you read that And I think it's partly because of the same-sex marriage postal survey, but partly just because this upcoming generation, Generation Z, who will be voting for the first time, they are really engaged. Like this whole... They are. Demonizing of, say, millennials, which is on the older end of that generation, and Gen Z, which are the late teens and early 20 somethings coming up, that they're not politically engaged. And then when they do a climate march, you poo poo them for being politically engaged. You, I mean, what do you really want of these young okay, people? Okay, okay. Yeah. I'm going to put this out there. This might be a bit controversial. I thought for, and I don't know, I don't know, I can't get my head around Gen Y, Gen Z, Gen X, so you can put a label on it for I can, me. I can delineate like, for okay, you. Okay, can you do that? But I thought for a while it's, and I don't know what generation this is, but it's the next younger one, I guess, after me. They became complacent, I think, because it got easier. We made the money, we bought the houses, they, they went to good schools. I felt that there was a sense of um, affluence in this country. Mm-hmm. And for a while, that generation didn't take to the streets. The really, I felt that they didn't really need to have an opinion because they were so well cushioned and so looked after in life. That's really I interesting. Be... I mean, look, I'm not a demographics expert, but I Neither imagine that, I. <laughs> that there are some people who might argue that as wage conditions and casualization of jobs increased, that but they that's... had that they that they didn't have the ability or facility to engage more. And I also question whether they did engage less or whether the activism manifested in different ways, in digital ways that were arguably more effective and had more direct results. Maybe. Maybe you're right. But I think this younger generation, they've had enough. Mm. And even though they have the the same comforts, that's right. But even though they've had the same comforts in terms of, you know, having access to great education um, and being, you know, having kind of affluent parents, um, they are, they've got a voice, they've got an mm. opinion and they want to tell us. And I'm feeling very excited about that. I really do. I think we're going to see a big change. Anyway, I want to get back. How do you came to your, prof- how you came to be sitting here with me talking? How was your uh, well, career? Well, caught the, caught the bus. And- <laughs> caught the bus, yeah. No, but how is it that you came, um, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, that's an easy question to answer. I wanted to be an actor on Home and Away. Oh, right. Very specific. That's very, very specific. Oh, look, you've got to have a 10-year plan, don't you? And and that was absolutely mine. Wow. Um, That's a different one for me. I was not a good actor. No. I did not have the face for television, and I mean that on so many levels. Um, And when I was leaving high school, what I realized was, well, actually, like, I'm not going to be an actor on Home and Away. That's ridiculous. But... I really love reading magazines because at that point I was still reading lots but I had kind of left books behind weirdly. I was like this voracious reader of books as a kid and then I found in my teen years I wasn't reading books as much. Do you know that's normal for males? Yeah, interesting. Mm, mm. I wonder why. Has Malcolm Gladwell (laughs) written an essay about why or anything? Do I just love Malcolm? (laughs) I love Malcolm Gladwell as well. Another Um, conversation. But I I also suspect YA was good, but it wasn't as robust and amazing as it is now. It is now, yeah. It's so good now. Um, But I was just heavily into magazines. I was reading Rolling Stone and Juice and HQ and The Face and Q and Spin. 
up in Queensland? Yeah, and this yeah. was largely pre-internet. I mean, we got dial-up just at the end of high school for me, but because it was pre-internet, my my access to the outside world of popular culture and culture generally was through was through magazines. And I was like, well, I, I think I'm just going to write for magazines. Yeah. So that's what I kind of studied. And that's what I started working. So in. you studied journalism. I studied a creative writing degree, which was oh. very new at the time. Yes. No one had graduated even from my course when I enrolled, but we borrowed a lot of uh, subjects from the journalism degree. There's an overlap. Yeah, but but all my friends who wanted to be novelists and playwrights and poets, they hated the journalism courses. Where I was like, I was like, this is a great synthesis of what I wanted mm. to do. I felt like I got the degree I needed. At exactly the right time. Yeah. yeah, and you kind of tailor made it for yourself. Didn't yeah, you? yeah. I mean, a lot of electives, but also really focusing in on and leaning into the journalism subjects that we were given, and and some of which we got to choose. And then I just thought to myself, oh, I think I'm just going to write for magazines for the rest of my life. And that was actually the, Not the aim and the goal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, tell me about your first job. Ah, well, I had first jobs, but in terms of writing, well, the first thing I ever got published was even before I I left school. I was like letter of the month in Rolling Stone. Wow. And my prize was a Panasonic stereo. Yeah, good prize. And, you know, being one of five kids, you'd know this coming from Mm. a big family. Most Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Of growing up is sharing everything. Everything. So having my own... Stereo. That was huge. And I thought, wow, writing is such a well paid profession. <laughs> Better pursue that. That is funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, but then in terms of first jobs, um, look, I wrote and then ended up editing the student newspaper at QUT. I. Hang on, I just want to go back to the yeah. stereo. Did you share it? No, of course no. not. It was mine. It was mine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, no, not at all. It was yeah. my room. Yeah. One of the very few things. Oh, you I had a room. In. Well, I shared my room with my brother up until 16 and then our parents split up at some stage. Right. So then they, then all the siblings kind of went right. everywhere. Okay. You know, yeah. so it was yeah. all kind of like a hot mess. Right. Okay. And so then I got my room for the, maybe the last year or two years of high school. Lucky and got boy. To have a, got yeah. to have a stereo. Um, good things can come out of divorce. Oh, <laughs> That's putting a positive on it. Um, and then first job, yeah, student newspaper. I was also doing like, you know, that music street press that, that yes. you'd pick up at cafes and stuff yes. like that. So I'd write for them. I ended up doing the magazine layout for them as well because yeah. I – just kind of weirdly had some design background. 
And then from there, I started writing for like the Courier Mail, the the only Queensland, well, the only Brisbane newspaper um, yeah. there. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so tell me about writing your first book. Okay. So the Family Law, which was, uh, you know, a collection of essays bound together as memoir that came out in 2010. Yeah. A while ago now. And how did and that come about in terms of you writing? Well, there was, there was a call out for an anthology called Growing Up Asian in Australia, edited by Alice Pung. And oh, I, I love and loved Alice's work. And I was like, growing up Asian in Australia, I grew up Asian in Australia. It would be like if there was a call out yeah. and saying, like, we need stories about growing up Lebanese in Australia. And you're yeah. like, oh my gosh, that like is exactly yeah. me. I've, I've never seen a book like that before. So I wrote a couple of essays for that anthology and they both got selected into it. And then the publisher, Chris Fike at Black Ink, he got in touch with me directly and said, hey, do you have a book that you want to pitch to us? And I said, absolutely yes, even though I did not no. whatsoever. But what a someone, fine call. But when someone says to you, do you have a mm. book in you, I, I mean, you just bluff and say, yes, I do, and mm. let me get back to you in a week <laughs> with a pitch. <laughs> oh, some people might freak out yeah, no. and say, no, not you. God, no, you no, just, not you, Benjamin. Well, especially as a freelancer, everything's a hustle. Mm. So you're like, yes, I do. Let me get back to you though. Yeah. And then I was thinking about it. I'm like, oh, my God, I actually don't. But what I do have are enough ideas for essays. I was reading a lot of David Sedaris at the time and I'm like, mm. actually, all of his books are essays that are collected. Yeah. I could do something similar. And so that's what I pitched and that's how the family law came about. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, I um, We had Melina Marquetta in recently. Mm. Yeah, do we love her? Love Gosh, her. I know. Um, and Looking for Ella Brandy, I read all those years ago. Yes. Um, and I'm older than, than you. I'm the same age as her, actually. But um, Such a touchstone book, isn't it? Isn't it? Because it was the first time I had read anything where I saw myself in yeah. it. Yeah. How important is that? Talk to me about that. Huge. And I think looking back I don't think I ever saw mm. myself or my family represented in anything that I really watched. I mean, there was Amy Tan, you know, mm. the Joylet Club. Mm-hmm. That's very much the Chinese-American experience and also Amy's a slightly different generation to me. But I remember watching and then reading the Joylet Club and then cons- like just inhaling all of her back catalogue from the local library. Mm. Um, that was one thing, but it wasn't quite, you know, quite exactly the same as what I identified with. David Sedaris was another person, you know, Mm. also huge family. He's one of six. Mm -hmm. Um, Also comes from kind of a migrant background because one of his parents is like Greek, Greek American Mm. background and he's gay. Mm. So that was another huge touchstone. So maybe it was Amy Tan, it was David Sedaris. Was there anyone in Australia? No, no. What about Christos Chalkos? Oh, I mean, he was huge. I remember reading Loaded for the mm. first time after I watched Head On um, and just thinking it was just like so sexy and raw and unapologetic and a big F you to so many things. Such a slim novel. But I but I think I read that um, probably my late teens or early 20s. Um, so that was, that was a huge mind explosion mm. moment. So there were a few things there that resonated mm. with me as well, but it was probably far more like, punk than mm. I was. Like I was mm. such a straighty 180, I mean, oh, not sexuality-wise, <laughs> but like in terms of, you know, being the obedient model migrant child. But I just loved his like raw, sexy um, 
I mean, he wasn't even, I mean, for me, I mean, I was such a straightie, but what I loved and I devoured that book and I've read it so many times, um, loaded was that they were people again like me. I mean, you know, I had very little in common with them, but they were people that I knew or could see or, I, I, you know, if I closed my eyes, I could see what they looked like. Mm. There were some people for me who were big in my mind, but I never think they infiltrated the mainstream. Like one of the things was an an Australian film called Floating Life and it had Cantonese in it. Right. Uh, It was a film about Hong Kong immigrants. It was really an, an intense and beautiful drama. And I had that on VHS and I watched it over again because I'm like, oh my gosh, they're Cantonese. They're speaking, they're speak, they're speaking Cantonese in Australia. I'd never seen anything like that before. Uh, it still really, really holds up, but it is wasn't it still one available? of those. I don't know. I, I'm sure it's available in the archives and maybe yeah, it's streaming somewhere, it. yeah. but, um, that was a huge thing for me. It was just on SBS mm. and that blew my mind because Previously, it had either been, you know, Chinese American experiences or me watching, I don't know, like Zhang Yimao's Raise yeah. the Red Lantern, like yeah. an actual Chinese film, <laughs> yeah. but nothing that was specifically Chinese Australian. Absolutely. That was the first time I saw something like yeah. that. So tell me, when did you move to Sydney? Uh, pretty, I mean, relatively recentish, like maybe six years ago. Oh, okay. Um, and yeah, that was, that was, Pretty spur of the moment decision, actually. Yeah. My boyfriend had um, come back from the states after living and working there for about a year, and came back to Brisbane, and then just was like, actually, no, I need, I need somewhere, I need somewhere bigger. And so it was either Sydney or Melbourne, and we decided Sydney. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So how did the SBS thing come about? The SBS TV show, the adaptation yes. of the Family yeah. Law. So the year in which the Family Law came out, there was. And this is quite heartening. There was interest from several production companies in terms of turning it into a TV show, which genuinely surprised me because, you know. Were see, you just pinching yourself? Well, well, I, I mean, I, I was completely bowled over, but then you kind of got to get down to the serious business side of things, yeah, of course. which is what do you want to make and how do you even see this being made? Because it's an anthology of essays that don't exactly link up in any structure mm. whatsoever. But they're great was, stories. Yeah, thank you. There was, I mean, there were some pretty wild, <laughs> like in a parallel universe, the Family Law TV show is not the TV show you see on the screen. Like there were some pretty wild concepts that were pitched to us. But the last production company that came and pitched was uh, Matchbox Pictures. Mm. And one of the founding executive producers at Matchbox is Tony Ayres, who also is Chinese-Australian and also is gay. And I played it cool yeah. because the thing is I was and still am such a huge fan of Tony Ayres' work. I knew his back catalogue inside out. He'd made Walking Walking on Water with Vince Colosimo. Oh, yeah. He yeah. um all those kinds of films, you know, he'd collaborated with William Young before and he'd just made a film that was based on his own life called The Home Song Stories, uh, which, again, was a very specifically Chinese-Australian film and that was a touchstone that really blew my mind, a much more recent one. But my family and I all saw it. We left the cinema sobbing. Yeah. And so I already already knew I was going to go with him and there was just such an easy shorthand where I didn't have to explain ethnicity i didn't have to explain sexuality he understood that as much as um the show would feature a chinese australian family it wouldn't just be a show that hinged upon 
quote unquote ethnic humor. Yeah. Um, that would be in there, but it wouldn't be the plot. Yeah. He just got all that. We didn't even need to talk about that. Did you anticipate that it was going to be as big as it was? That the audience was just going to devour it? We, we anticipated a really, that there would be a strong support from Asian Australian and maybe even more specifically Chinese Australian communities. And that's not an insignificant part mm. of the audience because Nowadays in Australia, roughly one in ten of us have significant Asian ancestry, and that's roughly proportionate to how many Black Americans there are in the United States. Yeah, yeah. So we're a significant part of the Australian population, and we got that we got that response. Like on Facebook, we we debuted the first episode on Facebook first before SBS. So there was oh, wow. this twenty four hour period where you could watch the whole first episode on Facebook. And what was amazing was just seeing everyone going, you know, wow. you could see the reactions, you could see everyone tagging their family members and friends in real time. It got over a million views oh, as wow. well. So Congratulations. it was it was it was yeah. nuts. And we expected that. But what I stupidly didn't anticipate was how many non-Asian Australians said, wow, that's my family, that's my family. And I was like, what? Mm. But of course it made sense. Like They saw themselves because it was a family whose parents were breaking up. They saw themselves because they came from a big family or a migrant family or they came from Queensland. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes mm. that was even enough because even that was different in mm. itself to show the fact that the show was about a Queensland family. Um, or they saw themselves with a mother who's told said really inappropriate mm. things. And that was particularly heartening because, you know, I've spent my entire life identifying with families who don't necessarily look like mine, identify with stories that aren't Chinese Australian. Why shouldn't it happen in reverse? Mm -hmm. Okay, tell me about your essay. The quarterly essay. The quarterly essay. Big subject. Yeah. This is probably the hardest thing I've written and it's because – you know, it's serious journalism, mm. and I've written serious, serious journalism topic. in feature articles, but nothing of this length. Mm. You know, a quarterly essay is something that, in a way, I've kind of grown up reading. I remember when the quarterly essays first came out, you know, mm. with Jermaine Greer doing White Fella Jump Up. Like, this is something that I've, like, I've got a huge stack of them mm. in, in my office still. And so the idea of writing one is deeply intimidating. Like, so many of my heroes have written a quarterly essay. But by the time I started wanting to write one, I had already been investigating and looking at the Safe Schools Initiative, which was this massive moral panic campaign that was orchestrated by News Corp Media for over a year and a half and still arguably is still going on now about an initiative that aimed to protect LGBTIQ kids at school. Um, and it became the kind of big boogeyman that crossed over um, in the period of the same-sex marriage postal survey. And I felt like it was so um, reflective of so many of our anxieties towards and about queer communities, about children and the protection of children. And it was also an example for me where I saw politics, especially federal politics, and our news media corroding in front of our eyes, like the integrity of both of these institutions that are deeply important to democracy were just fading away, that um, that news journalists and news organisations could not just blatantly lie and misrepresent things to their readership, but also orchestrate a campaign to bring something down that was designed to protect kids was just 
jaw-dropping. And, and in the introduction, I point out that both ostensibly supporters and detractors of safe schools were lied to. We were all told mm. and all based our arguments on the idea that um, things were being taught in classrooms about LGBTIQ issues. Me coming from the queer community, I was like, great, that's fantastic. That's why I support safe schools. Once you look into it, once you actually go into the material, once you actually go into the curriculum, you discover, oh my gosh, that's not what Safe Schools was at all. For over a year and a half, Australia was having this very vexatious, very emotional debate and argument about something that we were lied to about what it even was in the first place. And that's so all to, that's all to do with our political system. Yeah. That's all to do with our with the with with media organizations being bold enough to actually say to your face, actually, this is what happened when that's not what happened at mm. all. So so that's what um, I wrote over <laughs> a four-month insane period. You don't get that much time to write a quarterly essay. Mm. It's kind of like why every single one of us who've written one or the one that my friends that I've spoken to who've written one, we've all had slight <laughs> kind of collapses afterwards. But it's the probably the piece of work of which I'm most proud because after I wrote it, the Australian newspaper started going after me personally. Oh, then but, you know you've hit the mark. But what I was quite satisfied by was the fact that they couldn't go after the essay. It was so watertight. And in fact, the art section, which I've always thought has been a great section of the Australian, the art section actually gave it a positive review in the Australian itself. Mm. <laughs> so, yes, that I mean, there, there could be an update written about this essay right now. Um, because it's still a live story, um, the way that we talk about queer kids, LGBTIQ kids, especially transgender kids right now, has the capacity to harm kids. Um, Safe Schools, which is a teacher training resource that's there to equip, you know, teachers and principals to protect the most vulnerable kids at school, that was designed and implemented um, and in fact launched by conservative governments in Australia because we know that LGBTIQ, but especially transgender kids, are arguably the most vulnerable demographic in society right now. Mm. Do you know, we've got to finish off shortly, but there is, and, and I don't know how to describe it, so I'll just muddle through my thinking here, but there's a wave of conservatism globally. Mm. We're seeing it everywhere, yes. you know. Um, and there's a globe, uh, there's a... a a wave of, of blatant lying that's mm. become so acceptable, you know, maybe arguably started by Trump, but I, I think it even goes back to the Howard days. Mm. I think John Howard was a master at it. Um, and you've got all of this going on, this, I think, conservative, conservatism where people want to go back and live, you know, apparently in the good old days of the 50s, 60s. And yet we've got this young movement coming through with all this, mm. you know, fantastic idea. They're registering to vote. They're, you know, worried about the environment. They're worried about. And so I, I, don't, I don't know how it all fits in yeah. and where it's going to take us. It reminds me of something Zadie Smith recently wrote where she said there is a danger with nostalgia. Yeah. Um, and this whole idea of make America great again or Australia was perfect in the 1970s, the question has to follow who was it perfect for sure. um, and was only perfect for a very particular demographic. Whereas someone like Zadie Smith, black British woman, mixed race heritage, go back any period in time and things were always worse off. So, I mean, I think there are 
women in Australia, there are minorities in Australia, there are queer people and Mm -hmm. disabled people in Australia who don't look back at previous iterations of Australia with very much fondness Mm -hmm. whatsoever. Um, And it's called progress, guys. We've just got to move on. And how that looks, you know, that's how we should be shaping our future, by the future, not the past. But the people for whom uh, they see, um, you know, progress being, there is progress being made in other demographics and they feel like they had it better in previous iterations of Australia, you cannot underestimate how furious they are. Mm. The safe schools, the safe schools scandal is all about that. The idea that children might have, um, might not be heterosexual. I mean, I was not a heterosexual child and I feel like even now in 2019 talking about the idea of gay kids, of trans kids, that really makes people squirm, even if ostensibly they are progressive themselves, you know, like, oh, surely they come to 17, they just realise, and then that's the moment they need support. Yeah. That's not the case at all. Um, so that whole idea that um, we need to cling on to these tenets that made society good previously, I think they all need to be questioned one by one specifically what specifically are you talking about? Mm. That whole trick of like when the American talk shows um, go to Trump supporters and they say, so when you say make America great again, when was it great? And they all have a different, mm. they all have a different mm. response because we've all got different metrics about what greatness even is in mm. the first place. And I'm, I think that's in our future, not in our past. Oh, I agree. You're great though. Oh, thanks. You're great. <laughs> Thank you so much, Benjamin Law. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape Imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.